Recently, Boise Dev hosted a panel discussion on the future of broadband. Held at Jack's Urban Meeting Place in Boise and led by our Margaret Carmel, the conversation talked about how the dynamics and need around broadband are changing. From healthcare to education, it's a hot topic and an incredibly key piece of public infrastructure. Hear the full discussion next. The Boise Dev Podcast is brought to you by Anthony's Restaurant in downtown Boise. It's in the JR Simplot building adjacent to the Jump Plaza. And it's one of my wife and I's favorite spots. I'm a big seafood guy. They have some amazing dishes there. The oysters, of course, are excellent. Their crab, their fresh fish is so good. They call it the essence of the Northwest. And they, they say it's because they jet in the fish from the docks in Seattle straight to Boise. And they layer that with local options, beers, wines, coffees, ice cream, and the dishes on the menu. Everything I've tried has been so good because it's fresh, um, but the chef there prepares it in really inventive, fun, and interesting ways. The setting is is really cool, too, right on the Jump Plaza there. You can park in the JR Simplot Company garage, go up the elevator, and you're there. It's actually, for a downtown restaurant, really easy to get to. You can make your reservations online at anthonys.com. It's a great place for dinners, families, business lunches, and the whole lot. Give it a try. We appreciate their support of the Boise Dev Podcast. It's Anthony's in downtown Boise. This is the Boise Dev Podcast. My name is Gretchen Parsons. I'm with Boise Dev. I wanted to thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, Thank you to our sponsors, Regents and Wapbed, and thank you just for coming to talk about this important uh, topic of broadband in our state of Idaho. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce Mark Rusick. He's with Regents Blue Shield of Idaho. Thanks, Gretchen. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm actually very pleased and very honored to help uh, bring a great topic around broadband access through Boise Dev. So I want to thank Gretchen and Don and the the entire team uh, in actually making this event really happen. Uh, I've been with Regents now for about 16 months. And as I was traveling kind of the state, thinking about how Regents Blue Shield of Idaho can make an impact on the communities that we serve, um, I started thinking about suicide prevention, mental health access, federally qualified health clinics, all that wonderful stuff. And then I surprised my team by saying broadband, right? Uh, And so why would a health insurance company be so intrigued and so interested and invested in broadband? And the reality is it solves for two things. Uh, Access is the first one. Um, And so the idea that you can bring 300 uh, additional mental health providers through broadband into the state of Idaho is really important. Access is one, outcome is the other, and the outcome side is in mental health, there's actually greater uh, frequency in terms of keeping the appointment that adolescents um, and adults actually schedule. It's more convenient, it's right there at their home, no drive time, no commuting, that type of stuff. And so that's just one easy example where broadband has a major impact both on the access and the outcomes uh, in terms of healthcare for all Idahoans. Uh, Our own Dr. Meltzer will do a much, much better job than I am in terms of talking about the the value that broadband brings into it. Um, But it's an important topic, not just for employee retention, uh, customer satisfaction, business development, business continuity, but healthcare overall. So I'm glad that you're all here. I'll now turn it over to a much better individual, Margaret, who will actually grill our panelists. How's that? Thank you. 
Thank you so much. Welcome everybody. I really appreciate everyone taking the time to come here today um, and, and just discuss this topic with us. We have our lovely panelists here. I'm gonna let them go down the line and introduce themselves real quick and you can hear um, who you'll be learning from today. Um, so do you wanna start with uh, you, Dr. Meltzer? Sure, good afternoon. I'm Dan Meltzer. I'm the Executive Medical Director of Regents Blue Shield of Idaho and also a practicing emergency physician in the community. Hi, I'm Alexandra Winkler. Um, I'm the Chief Information Officer for the City of Boise. Um, that also means I run the IT department, so it's kind of dual role. I'm Donna Eggers. I'm the Public Information Officer for the Idaho Commission for Libraries. And I'm Quinn Perry. I'm the Deputy Director and Government Affairs Director for the Idaho School Boards Association, which represents all 800 school board members from 115 school districts and about 67 charter schools. Thanks, everybody. So we're going to start with our first question. I just want to go down the line, and we're going to start with um, Alex. Why does broadband matter, and what is the linkage between what happens on the Internet and what happens in real life today? Uh, thanks for asking. So broadband is the next... Um, Power. It's absolutely a needed infrastructure in our world. We've transitioned from the industrial economy to the knowledge economy. And I heard a new phrase last week as I was reading. Um, it said, we're also the work at home economy. Okay. So imagine that you don't have the internet. What does that limit you from? What, what are you blocked from doing? I was talking with my 14-year-old son, and um, he was at one of his club meetings uh, at North Junior High the other day, and he was talking with a boy he wanted to meet with on um, Saturday to, to play a game. And they were discussing uh, how they would meet, and he's like, I can't, I can't come and meet. My mom doesn't have a car. And Teddy's like, that's okay. We'll meet online. He's like, we don't have the internet at home, okay? I immediately called up the school counselor and I was like, hey, is there anything I can do? <laughs> um, I, I was just just um, so struck by that very personal story of this kid not having the same opportunities as the son I have when we have um, Wi-Fi at our house and, and such access to the things that we have access to. So to me, when I think of broadband, I think of opportunities for everyone. I think of all of the parties that we have here in every one of those use cases. So um, without that, we're just not giving um, a fair shake to everybody. Thanks, Donna. Well, when I started working for the state agency that I work for, we support all the libraries in the state. And it's amazing when I hit the road and go to these small rural areas to see that not only is the library the hub of that community, but it can be the only source of internet for that entire area. And it's it really brings it home when you know, all the kids are there after school to, to do their homework or to get that help and to, um, of course, play video games. But but uh, just just to have that place to go that, that has all of those kind of resources, including Internet, it's, it's pretty remarkable. 
Well, for public education, I think everyone had its head turned upside down in March of 2020 when uh, we expected teachers to be teaching uh, to students from their homes. And school districts quickly realized that not only was access to one-to-one -one devices a super challenge happening in school districts, even the most urban, well-funded school districts in the state of Idaho, but particularly for our rural folks, but also just the lack of internet access that our communities are facing. It likely mirrors kind of what you see in a school district population, what their free and reduced lunch population is. Many students in Idaho still don't have access to strong, accessible Wi-Fi in their homes. So for education, uh, this is a huge and serious topic and really expanding on what both um, Alex and Donna have said, which is that it needs to be, in, it's inextricably tied. So we have to figure out ways to cross barriers so that every student can succeed because if public education is to be the great equalizer in our society, well then we know we already have disparity between the families at home that don't have access, particularly even to high speed internet, but even let alone just a connection at home at all. Thank you. Dr. Meltzer? Well, first and foremost, we wouldn't be able to watch reruns of our favorite shows like Happy Days, so without broadband, so that's critically important. Um, you know, it's interesting, as healthcare has evolved over the last really five to 10 years, um, we've begun to take a look at things that, you know, when I was in medical school a while ago, we didn't think about. So typically when we think about populations and enhancing the health of populations, we think about, you know, who has diabetes, who has high blood pressure, um, who has cancer. And over the past five to 10 years, what we've started to focus on more so when thinking about how to, again, enhance the health of our communities and Idahoans is something called social, the social determinants of health or the social drivers of health, which include things like access to food and access to healthy food. It includes things like adequate housing, shelter, warmth, heat. It includes transportation. It includes how do you mitigate loneliness? So how do you include community? And it includes, most importantly, in this case, um, access to technology and access to connectivity. So not only as a way to educate and to socialize and to inform and to engage, but as a way, to, as, as my colleague um, Mark said, to deliver healthcare. And we've certainly seen that again over the past two years, in particular with the pandemic, where kind of pre-pandemic utilization of things like telehealth or virtual care was really about 1% of delivery of care. It's now massively adopted and massively scaled. So to reach particularly what we have here in Idaho, which are rural and frontier communities, if you don't have broadband access, you actually don't have health care. Um, at times. So it's, it's really become a, a key infrastructure, as important sometimes more so than having actual clinicians and clinics on site. Thank you. Um, we're going to go to Quinn for this next question. So what's on your radar for government initiatives right now, federal funding to help improve broadband access? And do you think it's actually going to help? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, a lot of the original COVID relief funds really helped with kind of hot spots that went home to families. And that was significantly helpful when uh, that happened. But um, I think the barrier for that is that COVID relief funds run out. And unless really stable long-term infrastructure is put in place, then I think families will soon again struggle once kind of we call them ESSER funds, but it came through both the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan Act. So I'm really focusing on the infrastructure piece that other municipalities are putting together and really how we can have long-term solutions to these broadband issues so that families can continue to have that access at home. 
Great. And let's, jumping off your question, let's go to Alex. Tell us what the city of Boise has in the works with other partners like Ada County um, from, from federal funds. Absolutely. So um, in December of last year, I've been in my role for one year, and um, about six weeks after I'd been in place, the mayor asked me to improve internet connectivity in the city. Okay. Improve internet connectivity in the city. Figure that out, Winkler. And so uh, I went about calling a friend. I phoned a friend over Ada County, Steve O'Meara. He's the CIO for Ada County. And together we decided to bring together all of the cities within Ada County. And we started our broadband coalition within the county. We brought also the school districts. We have West Ada, Boise School District, uh, BSU. Uh, we have ACHD there representing um, the roads piece of this equation. And we've been really mulling through how can we solve this problem that happens at the household level from a regional perspective. And this isn't a government thing. It's not a private thing. It's not a public thing. It's not an anchor institution thing. It's an us thing, all of us. So we have to work together. We know it. Um, and we're convening those parties together to start thinking about this from a, a macro perspective, from a regional perspective. So we're teaming. We just put in a middle mile grant application. Due date was Friday. It's in um, for a regional middle mile um, start of a skeleton of a middle mile network that goes around and makes a nice ring around Ada County and touches those data centers in the middle, connects us to the big pipes of the internet, and goes north to Gem County, and eventually we hope west to Canyon County. Now it's a dream, but dreams start with dreams. And um, so if we get the money, or even if we don't get that money, maybe we can get the funding and the cooperation to do it anyway, um, and start creating that middle mile that will allow it to be a heck of a lot cheaper to go to those unserved and underserved pockets. Because right now, the cost of entry into our place is pretty high. Um, and so we want to partner with those that are here today, broadband providers that are in the valley today, and ones that want to come to this valley so that we can start doing this. And then creating this, this is where all the data centers aren't in the state, right? So we have to connect that, and then we connect outwards. It's a networking problem and a win-win problem is the nice thing. So what are we doing? We asked for federal funding for that, so we went straight to, that's IIJ Middle Mile Fund. Um, we also got um, $2 million from the city of Boise to do Connect Our Parks. It's a um, pilot project to connect three of the parks within our city that are in those census blocks um, identified as having the high needs. So we're going to see about experimenting with public Wi-Fi in the parks at um, Cecil Andrus, Julia Davis, and Ann Morrison, and put that in there and see how it works. Experiment a little bit, iterate, um, and doing that. So that's ARPA dollars, IAJA we're going for, and we think it likely that we'll go for bead funding as well from the state to start um, servicing those un and un underserved household. So that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. Donna, what uh, programs are, are you looking at and your agency looking at to improve broadband? Yeah, so we've also been able to use some federal dollars, uh, ARPA and CARES. We purchased a lot of Chromebooks for public libraries, and so we've been getting those out and also some funding so libraries can purchase more hotspots and things like that. I think the biggest um, federal program that's coming along is the Digital Access for All Idahoans plan. So we're one of the agencies working on that. And so once that plan is in place and approved, then states will get the federal funding to actually implement that plan. So 
that's uh, kind of a big thing on the horizon and very exciting for Idaho. Real quick, can can you give us the, the too long didn't read on that plan? Can, I give the, the can you just summarize it? Summarize what the what that program is that you're referencing? Yeah, it's, um, it's part of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and it provides states with funding to create digital inclusion plans. And so that's, that's the first leg of it and kind of the, the big piece right now. And then again, once that plan is approved and ready to go, um, it qualifies states for additional funding. And so the plan addresses gaps for un unserved, underserved populations, uh, low income, veterans. Um, there's quite a number of categories, but that's, that's the focus of it is, is to help fill those gaps. Great. And Dr. Meltzer, what, what programs are you guys looking at? Yeah, I would say less less on the infrastructure technical side, side but ensuring, and I'll kind of pick up again where Mark left off, which is ensuring that tele or virtual first, what we call in healthcare kind of virtual first solutions are widely accessible, kind of spanning the scope of healthcare delivery. So, you know, Mark mentioned behavioral health, behavioral health access in particular, and behavioral health in general really is sort of the other pandemic that we've seen in the pandemic, if you will the need for, the desperate need for um, behavioral health services across the spectrum. So everything from, you know, what we, people would think of as typical talk therapy to addressing OCD to address its substance use, um, the whole spectrum. So ensuring that the services that we are contracting with, helping in some cases to support um, the right diversification, the portfolio of clinical products in behavioral health, in musculoskeletal health, in cardiovascular health, in primary care, in acute care, in post-acute care after people get home, ensuring that they have services that can be delivered via the phone, check in on them using biometric monitoring. So biometric monitoring, things like scales, pulse oximetries, cardiovascular monitors that can be through wireless or wired technology beamed back to either health plans and providers, ideally both. Sharing of information, so the best that we can to share information with hospital and healthcare systems with other payers when and where necessary, all via you know, the enablement of the communication infrastructure that's being set up. So care delivery services and then patient outreach services, so optimizing how they can access plans like Regents digitally um, so really the whole portfolio of healthcare solutions that's dependent upon this critical kind of uh, connectivity and wireless infrastructure. Okay, thank you. And I'm going to stick with you on this. So what are the Let's barriers What are the barriers you see to change? Is it Idaho's geography? Is it people not being able to afford internet, something else? Yeah, so you know, I've I've lived in Idaho for about 5 years now and you know, there was a term when I moved here that I I don't recall hearing before which is sort of frontier community. So we hear about typically urban, suburban, rural, but that fourth tier of frontier was new to me. And I don't think many people realize that short of Alaska, Idaho has the most frontier geography and communities you know, in the United States. So we have many, many citizens that are living in extremely remote areas. So part of it is, is purely geographic. Um, how do we ensure that we access those people that choose either by design or by default to live in these very remote areas? Um, so number one, accounting for them, accessing them, valuing them and prioritizing health equity for all Idahoans, not just those that live you know, here where we do. So that's number one is identification and understanding. Number two is an investment. 
and really seeing again the, the the link between the health of our populations and the need for broadband access that the two are inextricably linked and if we don't provide that access that care still needs to happen it just gets really expensive because they end up seeing me in the emergency department sometimes by a helicopter so it's really critical and incumbent that we do it as far as the logistics and funding you know i'd kind of defer to my colleagues over here but i would say the identification the awareness the return on the investment um, and then a stacking of hands to ensure that the, the dirty work of funding and building transpires as a priority. That's great. I'm going to kick it to, to Donna on this. What do you think are the barriers to change um, and to improvements at rural libraries in Idaho? Well, I won't, I won't go into geography because you're absolutely right. So that, that one's pretty obvious. I think one thing we've been working on is the training for librarians so that they can help their patrons once, once we do get the infrastructure and the devices and all those things which they need, but they also need to be able to use that tech themselves and feel confident in helping their patrons apply for that job or even just connect with their family members. And so I think that's, that's a piece that in addition to everything everyone else is talking about has is, is been real important and will continue to be so. And Alex, in the city of Boise, where maybe we don't have the geography problem, but there are other barriers, what, what do you see impeding that progress now? Would it be weird to respond with the not it game? Like, you know, where you put your finger on your nose? <laughs> not it, not my problem, right? Like sometimes willpower is the biggest barrier. The, the decision that this is gonna be my problem and I'm gonna work with others to fix it. So I think one of the biggest, Barriers is just getting out of our own way and the willpower. So given that I see that falling away, um, a shared mission, a shared vision. Um, so it's tough to get that across um, the PPP or the public-private partnership domain, right? But once you establish it, man, we could rock this. So for me, um, I think it's just getting our stuff together to capitalize on this once-in-a-generation opportunity where there is money in this space for the first time. So that's a barrier, but not an insurmountable one. Um, but let's see. Um, yeah. I guess I just see all the possibilities right now, and I think we can get through this as long as we focus on the outcomes that we're driving towards, not what divides us, but what unites us, so. Thank you, and Quinn, what, what do you see? I think yes, uh, to agree with everything my, co my colleagues on the stage have said, but I think for me, what's still gonna be the biggest barrier at the end of the day is the affordability piece, and ensuring that even if the infrastructure is in place, like can average everyday Idahoans afford to have a strong internet connection in their home so that their students have the ability to apply for college or to take an online course or to just do simple research that might take a higher broadband speed to download an educational video. So I think the biggest barrier for kids is still going to be that affordability. Can I weigh in? Yeah. There's this thing. It's called the Affordable Connectivity Program. Okay, um, that I want to say out loud because I want everyone to hear that ACP, Affordable Connectivity Program. It's a funding stream from the federal government that's a part of the IIJA or the Infrastructure Job Act that gives you a subsidy of $30 a month for a qualified household to pay towards internet plus a $100 one-time device fee to buy a device like a um, something like that. So we need to do a better job publicizing this and helping people that are 
not online, apply for that, get it, but then also encouraging our broadband providers to offer costs that give affordable packages such that they could have viable broadband at the cost of just slightly over 30. They, the Benton Institute estimates that um, people that are income challenged can really only afford um, 10 to $15 a month. 10 to $15 a month. So if you have a subsidy, that gets you to $40 a month. We don't have a lot of packages that offer broadband speeds at $40 a month, but we could. So affordability, concur. Let me, let me add on to that real quick. For those of you in the room, there's some flyers on the ACP program on the table out front. And if you would like to have some, the FCC will send those to you free. So you can just contact them and that information's on that flyer. So and your library has the information, and so they, the FCC definitely is making it really easy for you to have that marketing material to share. Thank you. I'm gonna come back to Dr. Meltzer again. How is broadband access for healthcare different than just getting online to, to play a video game or to read articles? I mean, because you, you probably don't wanna do your telehealth appointment in the middle of the library. Yeah, so, I mean, privacy is the big thing. So I, I think you want to answer that from, from two vantage points, um, certainly the, the patient, and I like to say, P.S., we're all patients, um, and then the provider, right? So most providers um, have the benefit of being connected to systems. So typically the provider is not not the issue. So let's kind of rule that out. So, so number one, it's the access and the affordability, which has wide variability um, and then to your point, the nature of the delivery of healthcare is highly personal. Um, now there are some environments in a library, as my colleague I'm sure would say, that are more private than others. There are headphones. Um, it, not all visits need to be to include video, actually. Um, the federal government mandates them for certain populations, i.e. Medicare, but other, video, other visits actually can be audio only. Um, and you can leverage that through broadband to get better signal. So there are, I think there are ways of mitigating it, but you're right. It does generally require a more personal conversation and therefore a quiet environment, which working families may not have the opportunity. Families with multiple children may not have the opportunity. So again, back to those social determinants of health, how do we optimize that? Um, it's, a good, it's a good question. That's sort of happy to double click on it, but that's how I would say for now. Thank you. Um, Alex, you are probably the more technical expert up here. I was wondering if you could walk us through just high level. What are some of the different solutions to, to kinds of broadband we see and how can they apply to different situations? Like what's, what's Starlink? What's, uh, how does Starlink work? How does fixed wireless work? How much time do you have? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so, um, okay, let's see. Starlink, connect to the satellites. Need to have a view of the northern sky, okay? So um, it's a fairly expensive option at this time, but what it allows you to do is have a device connect through Starlink technology to a satellite in the northern sky and um, get internet that way and then connect to the big pipes of the internet, okay? Um, here, local area, I just heard a little anecdote. Uh, one of our guys has a guy in the hills. Uh, it's about a $500 one-time setup fee to have it at your house, and then about $120 a month to pay for it, at least the package this guy bought, okay? So you can see that that's a little bit higher than $10 a month. So that's Starlink. 
it is a great solution for areas that don't aren't served. Uh, my infrastructure team went on a camping trip this summer, and boy, it was nice they had Starlink set up. One eight hundred. I know you're in the hills on vacation, but we have a question. So there was that. Um, and then you also have um, fixed broadband. So that's where you're wired all the way to the destination home, to the household. Okay, That's things like DSL, cable, fiber Okay, to the home. Um, that is by far the fastest and most reliable. Um, there are different tiers of that. Fiber is by far the one that has the least issues with capacity. Okay. It also has the least amount of limits in terms of upload speed. That's what you need to upload for video, right? So we all get pretty decent download speeds, but um, it's the upload sometimes that's the differentiator when trying to upload files or do video calls. Okay. So that's the fixed piece where there's an actual wire all the way to your home or a fiber all the way to your home. And then the one in the middle with that is, uh, I would say, fixed wireless. And that's where you need direct line of sight to a dish somewhere. So it's decent uh, and it's really appropriate for certain use cases. I think all of these solutions are great for certain use cases um, and not all. So those are the big three that I would talk about. Um, again, line of sight is a factor when you have as much hill and frontier as we talked about. Um, but yeah, they all have their place in this world. Thanks. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. I want to kick it to Quinn down at the end. So especially in low income communities, we're seeing a lot of people who they just have a smartphone or they just have a tablet um, to access the Internet. Long are the gone are the days of the 90s computer room. Um, how how does that impact learning and how does that impact users if they're only looking at the Internet on a mobile yeah. device? That's a great question, and I know that mobile is increasing, and I think desktop use is generically, you know, decreasing. But I think for purposes of learning, uh, I think having it on a bigger screen is is way better than more productive than having it on a tiny phone. Um, I also know the speeds have got to be much different on a or on a phone or a tablet than a desktop. So I think the other thing is the sensitivity of the material that you might be doing. For example, applying for college or applying for a FAFSA or um, taking a test online. That's very different on a phone or a tablet than if you're on a desktop computer with you know a keyboard in front of you. So I think if, if given the option of neither or one or the other, then a cell phone or a tablet certainly works in those situations. But largely, I think we know that the better productivity is going to be with a desktop, a laptop, or something that has a bigger screen, better connectivity, and a, and a keyboard in front of them. And I will just add that you know one shining star from the pandemic was that school districts were largely able to go to one-to-one -one devices. And I think that is a huge game changer for public schools. But like I said before, before, the funding that came in through public education, particularly on COVID relief stuff, was really looked at as one-time funding. So when that cliff comes down at the end of this coming fiscal year, a lot of us are wondering, well, how are we going to upkeep this technology? And how do we ensure that tablets and things that we've loaned out to these kids are able to stay updated so that they continue to serve students in future years? So. Thank you. Donna, what, what are you seeing with the shift to mobile devices and, and is that bringing more and more people to the library to use the computer? It is. And it's also um, one, one benefit for us from the pandemic was being able to help libraries extend their Wi-Fi. So a lot of them now are able to keep it 
on 24-7 and extend it beyond the library building. So we're seeing a lot of people, especially in small areas, parked in the parking lot of the library at all hours, um, using using Wi-Fi for whatever they need it for. So that's that's been nice. But again, yes, yeah, sustaining is things like that will be an issue. And the and the additional hotspots and the Chromebooks and all those things that you know kind of been a one-time thing. Um, my colleague is absolutely right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, um, but I do think that one benefit also has been to get folks used to using the library services, which has been good, and to know that those resources are there. So we just have to keep that momentum up. And our our staff has increased as far as folks working on digital inclusion and things like that. And so we're we're kind of um, making sure that we have the resources on our end to to help sustain that as well. Thank you. Alex, do you have any thoughts on this? Lots of thoughts. <laughs> um, OK, repeat the question one more time. So we're seeing a shift from people accessing the internet on desktop to a lot of mobile use. How do you think that impacts how people are accessing the internet? Something I always think about is rental, rental assistance applications. How do you fill that out on your phone? So I. There's a lot of government applications, yeah, rental assistance, all sorts of government access. Um, we had a focus group with the uh, Ada County um, group for different corrections applications, right? We were talking about use cases of incarcerated individuals. We were talking about families of victims that are navigating the judicial system. We were talking about all these different things. And it was so interesting to get the perspective of the nonprofits and the people that worked at the county talking about the experiences of those individuals working through the system. Um, there were... Um, real issues with um, access to the connectivity and the devices that were required to navigate, for example, the judicial system. There were kids that be, were being held in the juvenile system longer because their families couldn't connect for these appointments, for example. Um, they weren't getting the information. Um, they weren't able to apply for things the way they needed to. So it has a real, real impact and um, has, I mean, on a more micro scale, like has anyone tried to do a spreadsheet on your phone? <laughs> I mean, goodness gracious. So um, all the way from the micro to the macro, it affects us. And we need access to the mobile and we need access to the desktop in today's economy. So. Thank you. What are you, what are you seeing this uh, shift impacting on the healthcare world? Yeah, so most, most of the healthcare focus is, is, tends to be mobile first. So, if, for example, um, you know, health insurance, virtually all of that is designed and applied to be mobile first. So, eat lots of clicking, much less typing, big screens, big visuals, very customer friendly, because we know this is the most, you know, our mobile phones are the most utilized devices that we have. So, that's kind of on the payer side. Similarly, from a delivery standpoint, again, most of the applications, most of the programs, products, and solutions are also meant to be mobile first. One of the things that we've been focusing on very, very much a lot is when we think, you know, we think of digital, we think of broadband, we tend to think these days of video. Let's not forget audio. Uh, a lot can be done simply with an audio co uh, connection. And the good news is in the delivery of healthcare, you know, the history is always the key. We talk about the history, the history, the history. It's something Sir William Osler said that the diagnosis is always in the history. So the ability to ensure, if not video, at least audio, 
um, is a really good first step sometimes for the delivery of things like healthcare or the ability to call a health insurance agent or the ability to call a federal or local or state resource for help, perhaps with that application. So that's the other piece I think where mobile becomes really helpful is at least in facilitating the audio connection. Great. We're going to kick down to Quinn once again. So tell me about COVID and schools. What were some, I mean, I can tell from your expression, that was a stressful time. Um, how, how did that impact the learning and what were the lessons learned from everything that, that the education world went through in the last two years? Wow. Well, the educate the lessons learned, I think, from public education are still unraveling from the tangled mess that was uh, the COVID pandemic on public schools. But I think first and foremost was sort of the eye-opening realization of how many people didn't have the technology needed for at-home learning in their homes. It wasn't so much a surprise to many of us, but I think the amount of uh, the kids that didn't have that access was alarming. So you know, right away, I saw school districts pivoting to delivering Wi-Fi's on school buses or delivering, you know, paper assignments on school buses. And, you know, we could we could go talk all day about how, you know, public schools tend to be sort of the social structure for services that are provided to kids because it's the same thing for we're providing meals, three meals a day to kids on school buses at that time, too. Um, once connectivity got there, though, and that was a huge <laughs> push between partners like Idaho Business for Education work with HP to refurbish old computers because, you know, in that early turn of a dime when school districts had to pivot, you know, they had to figure out quickly how to get stuff done in a, in a period where we were all navigating this new world that none of us were used to. Um, so I think really that was a miracle. And just shout out to organizations like IDLA, and if you're not familiar with them, uh, they are a quasi-state agency that helps uh, real teachers provide at-home learning services to kids like we could not have survived the pandemic without groups like them um, and you know really we just all had to come together to realize okay uh, this is not going to be just a few months of a thing lots of school districts particularly in the Treasure Valley stayed with some form of at-home learning throughout the course of the fall of 2020 and even into 2021 so the lessons learned were we need to ensure that these types of things that we're talking about here today, like broadband and technology at home, is something that we maintain consistent throughout the rest of time. Uh, I don't want to ever scare you into thinking that at-home learning is going to be the new norm, but it opened the eyes of traditional educators to say, oh, does learning have to be butts in seats every day in the classroom? Because all of us opened our eyes to that it does not have to be. And in fact, many, uh, the, even the legislature has shifted to a more non-traditional learning method. And I think really that's a valuable lesson learned in the pandemic is that uh, we can have a more flexible model where maybe kids are at home, you know, one day a week. Uh, I know over 50 school districts in the state of Idaho are now on a four-day school week. And, you know, on that fifth day, I know that educators may be doing professional development from their homes. Kids may be doing additional at-home learning resources on those days. And really, I think the biggest lesson learned is just that we need that stuff at home for kids to just have a simple 21st century education. Thank you. Donna, so you've talked a lot about what libraries are doing to, to, to get Wi-Fi to people and provide those resources. But where do you think the future for libraries and the Internet is? Like, what's, what's the next phase of your work? 
Yeah, well, one thing that we've done a couple of pilots on is telehealth in libraries. And many libraries have gotten some grant funding to be able to create the physical space to be able to offer specifically telehealth, but then to also use that space for someone to apply for a job, to connect with family, to, to use it as a private space. And so getting that technology, not only the computer and the printer and everything that they need for that, but also some are having uh, blood pressure machines and some other things like that available. So in addition to telehealth, I think a lot of libraries are just, again, maybe realizing that they've got the opportunity to provide the services that their community needs. So it may be very different in St. Mary's from, you know, Moscow or whatever, but um, they're kind of looking at the big picture and saying, okay, well, you know, we, we don't necessarily need telehealth, but maybe we do need a lot of help for the employment arena. And so we can use the space and the computers and the technology to, to help our patrons with that. So it's just kind of, individualized in a way, but also some new, some new avenues that I don't think folks have thought of before. Thank you. Dr. Meltzer, what are some of the pros and cons of telehealth? And do you think it will ever truly replace a visit to the, the neighborhood clinic? No, I think, I think it's, again, getting back to where Mark started. It's really about optimizing access. So, you know, the pro standpoint is you now make access to care, particularly those hard to seek services like behavioral health, specialty consults, for example, much more accessible than they otherwise could be. Um, so I think it's an augmenter, not a replacement. I mean, look, you can't do a physical exam on the computer. You can't listen to a heart. You can't put an ultrasound probe on someone's belly to tell them how pregnant they are. So there are certain things that we just need to do in three dimensions. And I think that we want to have done in three dimensions. We know that most communication is not just verbal. It's our gestures, it's our eye contact, it's our movements, it's our body language. And as physicians, it's really important to be able to observe the patients to get a sense of how they're feeling, where their pain is um, or, or isn't. Um, you know, yes, you can see a rash on a screen, but it's different when you put your fingers on it. So I think it's it, it's it's a great augmenter. Um, I think what we're still defining and understanding is what are the really the best use cases. So psychiatric services, for example, make a lot of sense, but you can't replace a joint virtually. Um, so I think it's a really good, like I said, augmenter. I think we'll continue to see its scope expand, um, and that may create more capacity in the system for the delivery of other services. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to do our last question. I think it's the most fun question. Um, so if you had a magic wand that you could wave and create some sort of solution to broadband access in Idaho, what would it be? And I think I'm going to start with Alex on this one. The magic wand question. I love it. If I could wave a magic wand, we would have um, a united group of people together that were tenaciously optimistic about solving internet access for Idaho, public, private, healthcare, schools, libraries. And we're getting to that point, but we would all be united in that together, um, not worrying about whose job it is, but instead doing it together because um, the lovely thing about this problem set, it's a win-win it's a one. 
right? So many problems is like a win-lose situation, right? But this one is a win-win scenario. So um, I feel like we would have that in place and we'd be ready to apply for all the funding we need to solve this problem in Idaho because it's not a household issue or a city issue or even a county issue, it's an Idaho issue. Um, I love ITCs or the Idaho Technology Council's mission. They're like, we want to make Idaho the most innovative state in the nation. Well, we can't do that without solving this problem together, so it's a predecessor to me. So, find magic wand, that's what we have. Okay. What about you, Donna? What's on your mind? Well, after we solve that problem, I guess my magic wand would help folks be ready to use that technology and not be scared by it and willing to go get the help that they need to actually use it effectively. Great. Quinn? Wow. Um, great answers from them so far. I'm going to go like way magic wand and just assume that like free, free, I'm going to go free broadband access in every home treated like any other utility, like heat, running water. I think that would be my magic wand. I guess so we've talked about access, so everyone has it. We've talked about affordability. Everyone can afford it. Um, I think the other two other things would be the literacy. Everyone knows how to use it. Um, there's kind of an assumption that Everyone does, but not everyone does. Um, old, young, uh, marginalized populations, second, third, fourth, fifth language is English. Um, so I would say that's the third piece. And then the delivery of services, right? We would continue to see expansion of delivery of services like healthcare, um, optimizing the technology that we're talking about. Thank you, that's great. Now we're gonna open this up to some audience questions. Um, does anyone have any questions for our panelists? And you can just stand up, say your name and uh, your question. Oh, we're going to pass the mic around. Great. I'll, I'll break the barrier. <laughs> <laughs> it's always awkward being the first one. Um, so Jason Berdusco with Verizon Wireless, uh, Duke Government Affairs. Um, so I'm thankful that you guys brought up the ACP program, uh, which, by the way, Verizon does participate in. And we can get it at the bar like the threshold, like so we don't even add to that. But with a program that's at a federal level, how do we get bring it down to a local level? And how do we make sure that we can get this information to everybody's hands at, at a provider level? Jason, were you talking about the ACP? Like, how do we broadcast ACP information? Is that what you mean? Yes. Well, from a provider perspective. So, for instance, like, how do we, how do, we do better at Okay, so how can a broadband provider like Verizon um, communicate the opportunity to do the ACP program? I think, man, this is PSA land. We got social media, we have libraries, schools, healthcare providers, we have hospitals, we've talked to St. Luke's, we have, yes, Spark, or excuse me, Sparklight here. Celinda, so, you want to talk about this? Yeah, let's get her the mic. So I think it's a PSA challenge, right? Let's teach people what it is. Um, I think everybody has a play in this, and Sparklight wants to talk about it too. Well, there are there are already PSAs uh, airing on broadcast television, but of course, uh, broadcast television is being watched less and less as people that have access are streaming. Uh, 
I know our website, uh, Cox and Spectrum, also on their websites have that information. There's a link uh, for ACP. And customer care associates are also addressing that with customers or potential customers when they call in. So at least from uh, three providers within the state of Idaho, we are trying to make customers very aware of this program and make it easy for them. But it does fall upon the individual to sign up and go through the process. So I'm going to speak ignorantly about the program, but I'm going to tell you that from, so let's talk about like free and reduced lunch, which is now we have to, we have to collect paperwork from families and there's shame that comes with that and just a lack of, so from, from my perspective, you have to demystify the process. So de, you know, take down barriers for whatever it might be. Think about how that can look, make it as simple as possible and then communicate it exactly as Alex said, you know, we all come from our own entities and we all want to share that information out. But when I'm sharing information about broadband, I'm also sharing 1 million other things of social services that we're thinking about. So I think for me, it's demystifying the process and making it as simple for families to apply. Anyone else have any thoughts on this? It's okay if you don't. Oh, we have another question. Yeah. Hi. Uh, Business Interiors of Idaho. Um, so you talk about extending the reach of broadband, and over the last few years, there have been hundreds of millions of dollars spent in Idaho with not great results and maybe not great accountability either. And this may not be completely in your kind of wheelhouse, but this new money that's available now, how do we make sure it gets spent the right way and that? people actually benefit from it because it seems like we're just spending the same money over and over without actually improving our results. Okay, if you guys give me all the questions, I tell you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I was just at a geographic information systems conference this morning that's ironically being hosted at the Boise Center. Uh, it's a user group conference for geographical information specialists from around the country. Maps, public accountability. We know how to share information. Um, we need to do it. We need to be able to say, we've gotten this much money, post it clearly on the website. Public accountability and transparency is key here. This is what we're devoting it to and showing a delta. There's data out there that shows changes to this. We just have to figure out how to map it um, and communicate it. Um, it comes to transparency is important for not only what the providers are offering, but also the services people are getting. There's speed test data out there. We subscribe to it ourselves. Um, that's interesting, and we can see change over time with that. So to me, it comes down to visualizing data and being very um, passionate about sharing it and transparency. I really appreciate the question because it does come down to that. How do we measure the success? How do we get a baseline now? How do we communicate the changes based on the the, uh, the contribution? So there's great tools out there to do it. We just have to do it. Thanks, guys. I think now we're going to uh, wrap up the panel. Thank you so much for listening and joining us here today. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>